Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with Susan Reinhardt, who is the Senior Vice President at AARP, directing its Public Policy Institute. She leads the family caregiving initiatives and also serves as the chief strategist for the Center to Champion Nursing in America, a national resource center created to ensure that America has the highly skilled nurses it needs to provide support for the future. Judy and Susan chat about how vital it is to include disability in conversations around aging and include aging in conversations around disability, as disability is a natural part of life and that people's disabilities evolve over time and change as they age, and so will their needs. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guests today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, our guest is Susan Reinhardt, who is the Senior Vice President of the American Association of Retired Persons, otherwise known as AARP, in charge of their Institute on Public Policy. Welcome to our program, Susan. Thanks, Judy. I've really been looking forward to this. Well, our intention today is to help our audience learn more about issues around aging and disability and work going on between the younger and older disability communities and common issues. So what made you decide to go into nursing in the first place? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I come from a family that has nurses and actually several nurses, and I really like the idea of working with people directly. So rather than you know, become a physician, which you don't get as much interaction on a regular basis. And I particularly wanted community health nursing. You know, many nurses want to be in the ICU, in the emergency room, where all the movies show nurses. But I really like talking with people and being in their homes. And so that's why I'm so deeply rooted in home and community-based services, because that's really, I was in the, my very first job as a nurse was in the Veterans Administration Hospital in East Orange, because in order to be a nurse, you have to, they, at that time, it was like, you have to put at least six months time into a hospital. So I chose what basically was a MASH unit, if people have ever watched MASH, it's really great. And only six months, and then I, um, then I went into a visiting nurse role. What did you like about that? What did you learn from it? Well, the biggest thing I learned, although I learned some of this in nursing school itself, because we did do home visiting, but not as much, is that once you uh, ring that doorbell or knock on the door and somebody opens it and you cross that threshold, they are in charge. This is their home. You are a guest. You are a consultant. I, I thought of myself, a consultant to the care that is going on. And then you're going to leave and they're still there. So their health and, and wellness and disability and everything is where people live. And that came through really, really very early in my nursing career. And so what could I do in the relatively brief time I had with people to support what they needed, what their goals are, what they really wanted, and what resources could I bring to the table? Because really, it's not me. It's really, after I leave, what's going to help them? So I learned that very early. Well, and I think uh, what you've just stated is going to be important throughout our discussion. And you wouldn't have gotten that same set of knowledge if you had just been in the hospital. 
It's very true because people in hospitals of all sorts tend to, that they're in those four walls, I'll just say, right? And so they, it's hard for them because they are focused on really critical things at the moment and we want them to be, right? We really want them to do that. And they don't think what happens when you leave. They rarely even think about what happens when you go down the elevator and try to get in a car. This just happened to my brother-in-law and sister. So it's very hard to think beyond where you are, right, in life. I think you're raising amazing points right now. So how long did you work in the field? So I worked as a visiting nurse for maybe about three years, and then I got a master's degree so I could teach. One of the most interesting times was when I would teach nurses, they're already nurses, who were going back to get a baccalaureate degree. Many of them were in intensive care or pediatrics or something like that. And I have to tell you, they were, they were like a little alarmed about going into homes. Right. <laughs> Some of them were like, well, what am I going to do? You know, they're used to equipment. They're used to like, you know, important things, no doubt. But, you know, what am I going to talk about? How do I do this? So it was very interesting to see that this is a different environment, but it should be in every nurse's head. Every healthcare and social care professional should be very centered on the person and the person's family and where they live. That's so hard to get across, though. Unless you're living it. And I think, you know, the perspective that you come into this work is that people live a life. That's right. And that you're really there to help them piece together different things. And so you have to have a different relationship. Uh, which is why when I got my degree in public health, it was so exciting. So when did you stop doing nursing in people's homes? I've always been active in the American Nurses Association. And, and being a visiting nurse, I started understanding that you can give care one or support care one at a time, but that if you're really going to help, policy is one route to do it. This is a true story. I was a pretty new visiting nurse and I went to one patient's home and I was able to order orthopedic shoes and I was excited. So the next, you know, maybe it was a month or two later, I was in a similar situation and I called my nursing supervisor and I said, I think this person needs orthopedic shoes too. And she said, hmm, look at the bottom of the chart and look where it says payment and look at the boxes. And the boxes could be Medicare, Medicaid, veterans, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, private pay, some other insurance, et cetera. And she said, this one doesn't have the right box checked. That was life-changing for me, life-changing, because it really sunk in that my practice and my ability to support people was affected by payment. And that could only be changed through policy. I couldn't like call somebody up and fix it. It had to be changed. So that led me into going, I got my doctorate degree and worked in policy. And I then worked for the New Jersey State Nurses Association while I was also teaching. And so advocacy was, was really new to me. How, how do you get more people on board and form coalitions and work with legislators? And so I was doing that for quite a while and then eventually was recruited to work for a governor for the, I became deputy commissioner of health and senior services in New Jersey. I mean, I think the way you're explaining your background is very similar to myself and many other people. You know, you learned a little bit about how to make a law, but when you actually really get down to doing it, there's so many complex issues. 
one of which is really being able to put something together where many organizations or individuals are in agreement or support, and then to get people convinced. So when you think about the legislative process, both in the past and today, what changes do you think have or have not gone on within legislators' thinking about issues, for example, around the importance of home and community-based services? That's a really important one. And I think part of it is over time. So I've been doing this for a while. I co-led the Center for State Health Policy in New Jersey, and then I was recruited to ARP. So various lenses, as you say, looking at this thing. And over time, more people have experienced it themselves, either because they have a family member or an older, and maybe their parent, who really, you know, something happened. In many, many cases, it's something sudden, right? It's like a stroke or, you know, something, a fracture or something, but it leads to a longer term disability that then is a wake up call. And so more and more legislators, you don't have to tell them this because they have this experience. At least they have that much, right? They don't know what to do about it, which is what we need to do. So what do we do about this? And so gradually, I mean, we've seen the Medicaid world, you know, people spend down or they were low income and they're eligible for Medicaid. We still have a nursing home entitlement. That's what you get, a nursing home. You don't automatically get access to home and community-based services, but we've shifted it. And that's been since the eighties. And it's like about a 1% change over time. And we track this and we can get into details, but you'll see that change. And a lot of it has to occur at the state level. They're really, for long-term services and supports, it's been generally state initiatives. Now, the current administration and Congress, we hope, will take on more, you know, that they're going to invest more in home and communities. We will see. But that took a long time in coming for people to really get this. So we're excited. Very. This is like such an exciting time. It really is. And beyond the personal experiences that people have had, what do you think is the motivating, really driving force in this? Because as you were saying, there have been gradual changes so that home and community-based services as an option is something which is becoming more possible and that it's been driven at the state level. I think this is another important issue that many pieces of federal legislation really emanate from multiple states seeing an issue as important and begin to work on it and test it. And then when it rises to the national level, in a large part is being driven by local experiences, positive and negative. That's very true, absolutely. But I think it's also financial. I think there is a growing awareness that institutional care is more expensive. And that also comes from state budgets again. So, you know, you'll see legislators that were state, they worked in states and then they're elected to Congress and you know, they join different caucuses. And so it's, you know, you're learning more and more. Uh, but again, most of that funding is directed at the states, but in Medicaid, there's the federal match. So there are these policy levers, we like to call them, there are ways to increase the match. That's what's happening now that, oh goodness, if we could do more increase, we have a 10% increase right now as an incentive for states to increase the home and community-based services. I have to say COVID has also had a remarkable, remarkable impact. Yesterday, the state officials in Connecticut were uh, presenting at the National Academy for State Health Policy, all virtual, of course. And this presentation was 
pretty profound. They have been uh, estimating through data how many people will be needing home and community-based care over time. And they've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years, and they've been going into the future so that they could prepare. And it's been about, for them, about 2% change a year, which is double what the national average is. So that's really good. And uh, this official, who I think is fantastic, said that within months, they went from where they were to 2029. That's such a shift from institutional care to home care, jumped them eight years in their projections. And that meant they were short 10,000 home care workers. That's what they would need for 2029. This would, these were all their projections. Like on top of that, well, they were losing workers, right? So workforce has become, not that it shouldn't have been before, but such a huge priority and, and I think Congress and state legislators are getting that we are beyond crisis in terms of the what you need to be able to stay at home. Yeah, I mean, as one who uses personal assistance in the home and have many friends who also use personal assistance, it's a crisis everywhere. And part of it is salary, but I think it goes way beyond that, which maybe leads us a little bit into an, another part of this discussion most people hope to become older. And statistically, we understand that disability increases as we get older. And yet it's been difficult to have meaningful discussions with people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s to look at disability as something which is normal and to be preparing for it so that they're not falling off a cliff. If like you said, something happens. And yes, it may be a stroke, but it also may be a gradual uh, change in whatever. What changes have you seen in being able to have this type of a discussion? And do you feel that it's important for a larger number of people who may not yet have disabilities, as well as those who have acquired disabilities, to be engaged in this discussion? absolutely do. And I've been thinking a lot about this since we talked earlier about it. First of all, people don't want to think about anything difficult happening to them in the future. I think that's human nature. You want to be positive. You know, you're focused on what you're doing that day and very busy with your life. So thinking ahead is not a great, we don't do that in general very well. We don't, we don't financially plan for the future. We, we're sort of as humans, I guess, we just don't do much of that. But that is also reinforced by what we see in movies, for example. It used to be, I think it's changing. It's starting to change, but everybody in movies was like beautiful and always young and you know all of this idealized version of living. You're starting to see that change. And I think that's, that's good. You're seeing more uh, diversity in general in uh, race, ethnicity, disabilities, ages, you know, we see romantic leads who are in their 60s, they're kissing and, and what have you, in their 70s, like that was like, oh my God, that never happens. <laughs> so, so I feel good about that, that that's changing some of the myths, I think. But nonetheless, people are generally in denial. They believe they're going to be fine. The, those statistics belong to other people. I'm going to be the survivor. I'm going to be the one that does, this doesn't happen to. So it does take 
more thinking about this. I, I see articles in the press more often in the popular press, in the New York Times, you know, in the Wall Street and, and more local newspapers getting more into it. So it's a little bit harder to deny it. I think we need much more of that. At, at ARP, we often use the lens of a family caregiver. And it is something, you know, since I was a visiting nurse, there was a family member very often there and that family member needed help to be able to help. <laughs> and needed some attention to their own needs as well. And so we have this document and we call it Prepare to Care. And it is online and uh, it's downloadable and it's in, I know it's in at least Spanish. We have uh, different versions of this too, but it gets to exactly your question. Like, how do you have this conversation about what you're gonna need in the future? How do you create a plan? How do you start thinking about it? And there's very concrete advice. You know, it talks about, you know, is this, Something you've read in the newspaper that you can bring up a conversation with, like, oh, did you see that? And have you thought about this? And da 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 da. Or a movie that you just saw, or, um, or it could be the holidays, you know, people coming together, let's say Thanksgiving, and you notice that your mother or someone in your family is not quite themselves, is maybe a little more forgetful or not walking as strongly as they did. That might open the conversation about, you know, let's, let's just talk about what you might need. And the most important thing is to really go from what the person's goals are, not we need to get you into another place. We need to move you here. We, we need to do this for you, right? It's more, let's talk <laughs> about how you're doing and and, and we could go more into some of those aspects of it because it, it's very good. They have tools for goals and needs assessments. It's really pretty simple and pretty good. But it also, as you're doing this, let's say I'm the daughter and I'm talking to my mother, it is making me aware too. The more you do that, the more it goes down through the ages, right? As a, ooh, I should be thinking about this too. One of the things, it just amazes me that people don't think about it is where you live. How accessible is it? And by the way, it's not just if you have a disability or you're aging, people have accidents, you know, they fall. We, our homes have to be more universally designed and any chance you can to do that, or if you're gonna be moving in any way to look at that and people don't do it. They just don't do it. I'm just so surprised because even if you want to have someone visit you, you want to make it possible for someone to visit you that might have a disability, even if it's temporary, you're going to have to make sure they can get in the house and they can use the bathroom and they can, you know, get in. So that's something that I really hope we do more work on as a society. We've done better with the curb cuts that came from the disability community. That was adapt. Adapt made that happen. And the veterans. And right, the veterans and adapt. It was like. And the first piece of legislation that came out on curb cuts was initiated by a disabled guy who lived, worked for a US senator in Alaska. And in 1968, the law came through that curbs that were being repaired or constructed with federal money would have to have curb cuts. And I think the discussion that we're just having is very important. And, um, you know, a guide to preparing to be a caregiver 
you know, I look at it from the independent living perspective and think a guide to preparing yourself. Exactly. And I think many of the points that you're raising around housing as an example are so very critical. You know, we talk to people who are older who weren't doing any planning and their homes are not accessible and they can't necessarily make the home accessible or get the money to make it accessible. So this area to me is how do we get our people living in the community today to look at the issue of accessibility so that when cities and counties and states are putting money into housing and into design, that this issue of accessibility becomes built in. And it really relates to the discussion that you and I have been having right now. I agree with you. We look at the immediate. What do we need to get done today? And it's difficult to look to the future. I would say particularly in areas like accessibility of housing because people haven't thought about it. They haven't seen it. And how is AARP working to try to get people to live the vision that you're discussing? Getting people to be proactive instead of reactive, when we know that being reactive frequently means it's not going to benefit the person, maybe in the future, but not now. So we've created what we call the long, it's a big name, right? Long-term services and support state scorecard. <laughs> it's it's www.longtermscorecard.org. And we started this more than 10 years ago. I think it was like 2009 with a vision. Like, what is the vision of a high-performing state system of, we'll just say long-term care for short, long-term services and supports. And we have an advisory committee. In fact, I really want to expand that advisory committee to have more people with disabilities. We have some, but I think we, we really need more. Anyway, they, that what is the vision? And we have five dimensions. So we've just been talking about access, but it's not accessibility, it's more financial access. Like how do you get in? And what are the options? What are the choices that you have? What do we have to support family caregivers? And what about quality? And then we have transitions. How do states do in helping people leave nursing homes, for example? We have like 26 data points that we've been tracking over time. We just issued our last one just about a year ago today, just about, and we will do another one in another two or three years. It's generally about every three years, but we use it with our state offices really use this a lot and they use it with volunteers. So it's aimed a lot at policymakers, but consumers and volunteers, advocates can use this. We do a lot around home and community-based services, so a lot. How are states spending the money? What is the um, availability of assisted living, for example? What is the supply of home health aids? It's hard, you know, you don't have data for everything. That's the real issue. So you have to have all the states collect, et cetera. So, so that's, a, that's a limiting factor. But we have employment. This came from the disability community from the very beginning that we wanted to look at employment within quality, that that's part of quality of life. And so we've been tracking this from the beginning. And we look at the ratio of employment of persons with an ADL disability. What is ADL? Thank you. Activity of daily living uh, and as a form of disability. These are data that we can get. And could you give us an example of what an ADL is? So it's bathing, dressing, uh, mobility, walking, yeah. toileting, 
These are ADL disabilities. So we're, we're tracking the ratio of employment of working age adults who have an ADL disability over those that don't. So the highest percent that we have found is 30%. And that's in Minnesota and Nevada. Now, we, we know in the last time that like North Dakota, Vermont, Virginia, Idaho are improving. They went up about another 20% for them, but we don't know why. Maybe you could explain that a little bit more. So in other words, we're looking, what are the employment opportunities for people with disabilities in states? Mm-hmm. How did that vary? I mean, our look, we rank states in various things. So, you know, Minnesota and Nevada top ranked in that area. So there, you are more likely if you, and you're looking for a job, more likely to get a job if you have a, dis, a physical disability we're talking about in Minnesota and Nevada than you do in any other state. Why we don't know though. <laughs> so there's an example of, okay, we're gonna give you the data. Now, could advocates in that state, those states, in any state, determine why? Are there policies that are helping with this? Is there a better use of the um, ADA, you know, against discrimination of people with disabilities? Is that, is that governor or legislature taking that more positively? Is, or is there private industry that is doing that? I don't really know. I would like to know, though. But it is something that we should be advocating for. It's very interesting because when you think about states that are doing more around personal assistance and not making people drop off the cliff so early, you look at Massachusetts, New York, and Washington State. So yeah, it'd be interesting to look at the scorecard for those three states. So do you ever go in like with this issue and can you do further research? Yes, we do that. And that's why I'm saying we should do that. We call them promising practices or some other spotlight, like what's going on here? How does this state do this? Self-direction is another one. So self-direction is a term that really comes from the disability community. Your paper years ago, Judy, I read it, understand it. You were making the point that older people can have self-direction too. It's not only younger people with disabilities. And that really affected ARP, I think, years ago. Like, oh, maybe we should pay attention to this. You know, what is that all about? So so we do track that. What states have more programs that allow people to hire their own worker and um, choose what services they want, as opposed to certainly a nursing home, but even home care agencies that, you know, it's a little bit more prescriptive, I'll say, a little bit more like, here's what we have. (laughs) This is the worker you're going to get, right? So self-determination is something we're tracking in the scorecard too. And that varies, you know, California is number one because they've been doing it for, I don't know, 30 plus years. Well, in-home supportive services in California, I think, started in the 50s. And, you know, it started, I believe, because there were a group of post-polios who had been at Rancho Los Amigos in L.A., and they wanted to move out, and they weren't able to. So I think that's where the IHSS program came about. And it was certainly in the beginning uh, very much impacted by the disability community. and so. There were some people who were able to be self-directing in their services in a way that I think has been very important. And you've seen that in other states. And I think it also leads partly to this next part of our discussion, which is what we've been discussing right now are kind of learning moments. 
And I think from the aging community perspective, looking at how to help others prepare for someone becoming older, as opposed to either preparing the person themselves who's going to become older, or I think as you were implying, doing something in a more collaborative way between the individual who's getting older and a family member or a friend. Do you think that form of a discussion is gaining more ground? Well, it's hard to know. Of course, we don't have data on that. We can have stories. We do collect stories at ARP. I'd have to look and see, you know, if that's something that anyone is tracking. But in just talking to friends and colleagues, it seems more likely that people are going to talk, but it may be just certain things. Like it might be finances, you know, let's make sure you're going to have the money that you need to go forward. Or it could be maybe advanced directives because there's, there's been more and more attention to living wills or what do you want? Should you become very ill and need to have decisions, um, you know, have your decisions made rather than somebody else's decision. So there's certain areas that I think are being done. As you point out, I don't think accessibility is one at all. It blows me away. My own, I mentioned my sister and brother-in-law a moment ago, about a little more than a week ago, my brother-in-law, who is an attorney, had no financial issues. My sister, his wife is a nurse. <laughs> she was my role model, right? And they live in a beautiful home, not far from me that is completely inaccessible, completely, to even get in their house, either the front or the back, because this is an area that easily floods, so that's why it's up, right? But there's no ramps, there's no way you can get up there. He fell off the back steps, and he completely, his, his um, tendon, this is the part that attaches a muscle to your bone, basically exploded. So he's gonna be in this, it's not even a cast, a brace, He's probably got at least a six months recovery and he needs an enormous amount of help. He didn't hit his head. So he's very lucky. So they get him in. Well, how's he going to get upstairs? That's where his bedroom is. They don't even have a couch that opens up downstairs. I bet they do now. It's, it's like, oh my God, you've never thought about this. You know, now me as a visiting nurse, we have a couch that opens up downstairs. This is also interesting. We were going to redo our kitchen. There's only a little step in. So that's good. But I wanted to make sure the doorway that goes into the kitchen could, I think it's 36 inches. I forget what it yes. is. Yeah. I wanted to make sure, but they had to strip off to get like to kind of 36 inches. We called in this, they went, the Lowe's, you know, Lowe's was doing this work. And I said, you know, what if we knocked out this closet and the little bathroom we had, we made a shower and we did all this. He was like amazed. We didn't do it right now, but we have a plan for doing it. He was like, what a good idea. This is the this is like the major person from Lowe's. He never even thought about. And I live in a community with it's not an age friend, it's not an age community, but this area in general has many older people. And by the way, they have there's they have resources to do this. It's not even the um, 50 plus communities, many of them are completely off. They're inaccessible. Yeah, my aunt and uncle moved into one of those and the uh, unit that they got was up two steps. And then when my aunt got sick, she couldn't get up and down the two steps. So how do you think we can move more collaboratively together between the disability community, which has older people in it, obviously, and the younger generation of disabled people and AARP and others? How do we 
really launch a campaign which allows people to look at planning for your future uh, in a way which really enables you to be more in charge of your future. And, and by the way, I would say on finances, I actually do not believe that most people are really looking at their finances. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So have you thought at all about, and or can you give examples of how greater collaboration is going on between the aging and disability communities to allow these kinds of discussions to become more front and center? So when I was at the Center for State Health Policy, I was awarded a grant from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. This was like 2001, when remember there was the ADA had been passed, Olmstead uh, was Supreme Court decision, all this was active and Congress, and actually it was President Bush, I think, uh, Junior, I think it was, and, and Congress put together this you know, package of dollars that could go to states that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services was um, overseeing to help get more home and community-based services, right? Within that, there was a real push to bring aging and disability advocates together. And I was awarded a grant along with ILRU, it's called in uh, Texas. ILRU is the Independent Living Resource Utilization Project at Baylor College in Texas. And so we both were awarded grants to collaborate on how we could do this. And it, oh, and at the state levels, we have ADRCs, Aging and Disability Resource Centers. These were very intentional to bring uh, the groups together. So I think there's more progress, more people. I always feel the disability community has infused your independent living philosophies, tenants, principles into the aging world. People didn't say person-centered care very much. <laughs> it just wasn't or self-determination or, and not just the words, but the meanings behind the words. So the disability community, in my mind, has influenced the aging community profoundly, at least the advocacy world. Now, are we doing enough together? No. I can tell you that ARP is going to be doing more together, not just me in my world of policy, but throughout our organization and looking at equity, health and financial equity. There's a real passion, I would say, for looking at uh, multicultural populations and including disability. You know, like we, sh we should be doing more. So that's just starting. I don't want to say starting. We, we have a lot. We have an ARP litigation group that does a lot of work on discrimination based on disabilities, Olmstead work, big case in D.C., lots of things. We have a policy book that talks about, you know, access to uh, social security, disability benefits, and uh, certainly home and community-based services. Our advocacy is very much focused on aging and disability in home and community-based services. It's not like ARP isn't doing anything. I don't mean that. But I do see a, a big push to do even more. So, you know, in the next years, I'll just say years, I think we'll be doing important things and that's gonna require conversations, big conversations. What do you hope as it pertains to the American Rescue Plan, the maximum and the minimum? Yeah, so I work with someone, Brian Burwell, his name is, we've been doing this for many years and Brian and I uh, did a blog together on this. He said, this is the most money he's ever seen in his entire career that is possible, right? 
And I agree with him. It is. Uh, unfortunately, it's money. That particular pot of money is only available for three years. You know, you, you have to keep making plans, but still it's a lot of money and you can address it for infrastructure, as they say, for things that can be fixed. And there's a lot of things that that could go for. I mean, you could certainly give bonuses to workers. You can do things. States are worried about getting overcommitted and will they have the funding later? Uh, but there's things you can do now that would have long lasting effects. So we are watching this. We're not the only ones watching it, you know, but we are studying this. And when I mentioned Connecticut, that was what they were talking about, what they're going to put their money in. And by the way, they are going to do things in accessibility. So it's very, very exciting. This is the most exciting time. And to see if, if Congress passes any of that money into infrastructure, soft infrastructure, they call it, will be incredible. I, and we are working very hard. You can imagine our advocacy at both the national and state levels is completely dedicated to this. So as our program is winding down, what are some messages that you'd like to give to our audience? Well, first of all, I want to thank them and thank you for having me on and to encourage people to keep speaking up. We have to keep saying what is needed. This is a very important time to weigh in, talk to your Congress people, your legislators about what is possible and what is needed and how it affects your lives. You know, legislators in general, they do like stories. We give data. I, that's my job. Lots of data, right? But we need the stories to humanize the data or the data to back up your stories. They got to go together. So don't be shy about speaking up. Yeah, and I completely agree. It's one of the reasons we started doing the human perspective is to get people's stories forward, because I completely agree with you. Stories in regard to what we're discussing today, like home and community-based services for people who've lived in institutions or who've been at the threat of living in institutions, being able to talk about how their lives are different by being able either to move out of institutions and live in the community or stay out of institutions and using data that you're discussing through the uh, long-term scorecard. These are all very promising approaches. So Susan, thank you so much for giving us this time. I've learned a lot and I look forward to working with you more in the future. Thanks, Judy. And I learned a lot too. Thank you. I love, I had no idea some of what you'd mentioned. So thank you. Thank you. You've been tuning into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guest was Susan Reinhardt. Be sure to stay up to date with the work ARP is doing surrounding disability and beyond by going to their website and following them on social media. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Huaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. <laughs>